You're listening to Return Again, the no-holds-barred podcast about the ins and outs and ups and downs of building a life in Israel, with those who have been living in Israel long enough to have perspective. Today's guest is Chaim Wisman. Chaim moved to Israel 25 years ago and has led such a fascinating, eclectic life since then that I just had to speak with him. An attorney by training, Chaim has done the following since making Aliyah. Lectured to students at Eishat Torah for eight years. Founded a running club that boasts far more than 50 members of all skill levels from several sub-three-hour marathoners to, well, me. <laughs> he opened a running and biking shop and experienced it getting robbed. He served as the head of sports-related fundraising for Aline, the children's rehab hospital in Jerusalem, and has more recently played a similar role in Gears, an organization that trains children in mountain biking for the sake of building their confidence. Chaim and his wife Sarah have six children, and more importantly, two grandchildren, and I'm sitting with Chaim now in their home in a Jerusalem suburb. Chaim, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's start at the beginning. What would you say is the beginning of your Aliyah journey? Uh, The beginning of my Aliyah journey is uh, probably, uh, I grew up in an Orthodox home. Uh, I was involved in NCSY. Um, We grew up in eastern Long Island. It's not kind of the Long Island that everybody knows about, the five towns. Um, My brother and I are probably the only uh, kippahs in a 30-mile radius. We called them yarmulkes back then. (laughs) And um, uh, my father was the Orthodox rabbi. It was sort of a Kirov-based shul, so anybody who wanted to be... uh, uh, religious or was interested in religion would spend Shabbos at our house and uh, so we had a very open house uh, in fact like train had, station people coming yeah, through yeah and not only that I mean my parents were incredibly bali chesed I mean uh, even the people of Chabad would throw out my parents would uh, welcome warmly I remember one time when I was like uh, 17 years old I looked around the the, uh, the table there were like 20 people around the table and I think about 17 of them had some manifestly discernible psychological disorder. I'm not talking about like a little bit off. I'm talking about schizophrenia, you know, personality disorders. And I, I went to, I said to my parents, I said, Mom, Dad, why, why can't we have anybody normal around the, the table, you know? So my parents looked at me and they said, said, what's wrong with you? She said, you think it's a mitzvah to have the popular people? She said, she said everybody wants those people. She said, the people have no place to go. That is a mitzvah. And it's wow. ironic that uh, there are three of us, my brother, my sister, and I, and the middle child, and all three of us have sort of mirrored that in our homes. We've all, all been sort of magnets for the uh, socially disaffected one this way is, or another. <laughs> this is why this is why you allow me in the running club. <laughs> yeah, something like that, Joel. Um, so in any event, so we, so we grew up in a Zionistic home. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say Aliyah was, uh, was a sort of a, an inevitable idea, but when I was in uh, law school, I, uh, I met a girl from Israel whose father was, uh, was a professor at Bar-Ilan, and they were on sabbatical, and uh, fell madly in love, and uh, made a commitment that we would get married and uh, move here within five years. And nobody believed it. I had a big, fancy job at, at the world's largest law firm. Skadden Arps. Yes, yeah, Skadden Arps. I was an antitrust commercial litigation lawyer, and it uh, looked like things were quite rosy. But sure enough, four and a half years later, we did make Aliyah, you know, sort of uh, contrast to, to expectations, and uh, we haven't looked back. I shouldn't say we haven't looked back, because it's not true. Um, we, the, the first couple of years were a little rough, and not for the reasons that people normally find it difficult. Mo- normally people find uh, Parnassa, livelihood issues, challenging. That was really not a problem for me. You know, early on in the game, I, I, I just, by sheer dumb luck, invested in a, in, a, 
in a high-tech company, which which hit fairly well. <laughs> so uh, so financially things were good. Is it known? Is it known now? Um, the, the comp- I actually did you know did quite well in that investment, but but ultimately the uh, the company ultimately uh, folded in two thousand when everything else when everything did. else did. Yeah, yeah. yeah but uh, <laughs> but I was I was fortunate enough to take well, take out substantially more than my investment. So that was a nice thing. Um, plus I had my uh, I had already established my own law firm and was uh, was generating some nice income for fifteen years beyond. Beyond uh, after I made Aliyah, so that was not really the issue. But we had moved to Jerusalem, and it was a very bad time to Jerusalem. I, I remember we made Aliyah February first, ninety six, and oh, exactly is... a week later, the first eighteen bus blew up. We actually heard the explosion. The a week later, the second eighteen bus blew up. That we heard that explosion as well. Um, I, I remember we. I, used, I was before you get a car. Um, I was uh, traveling to Opan by bus, and I remember the scrutiny that people were. People were looking at each other as of if course. they were a terrorist, and they were like sort of, uh, you know, hiding some sort of explosive device under their coats. It was just a really horrific period. Um, but you know, that was. Uh, I remember th- that period specifically, not just because I'm a Jew and I care about Israel, but we weren't here yet. But um, we were getting married that March. My wife and I were getting married that March, and the plan was to take our honeymoon in Israel. I had never been to Israel before. And then those two bus bombings happened right before our wedding. Uh, During the week before our wedding, where you know the tradition is the husband, the, the 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 bride and groom don't see each other, so we didn't even speak with each other the week before the wedding. But I remember we had a phone call to talk about what are we going to do about the honeymoon. Wow. And we wound up going to Hawaii instead, which probably <laughs> postponed our own aliyah for for many years. Did it really? It must have. It must have because I fell in love with Israel as soon as I got here. Which is a different story. It's not well. Movie, it, it could very well be that March '96 would not have been the uh, would not have been that romantic moment that you ultimately experienced. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, so I remember that time. So, but we we had moved so to. That Jer- was when you first moved here. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but but that was uh, it was a bad time in Jerusalem you know, for security reasons as well. But also, there wasn't that sense of community which exists today. For example, you know, we got there and. Uh, and it was very urban. You know, we, uh, when you come from Chutzlaretz, you expect the, uh, you know, your, your community to be very, very uh, embracing. You right. know, the shul is the center, you know. Um, but in, uh, you know, in Israel, part of, uh, you know, for good and bad, uh, people are all just Jewish and, you know, and, and there just is. You know, everyone just is and no one has to make a big deal about it. And, and I think that the, uh, the, the uh, corollary to that is that shuls are not necessarily the thriving um, community-based uh, organizations that, that uh, you have in Chutzlaretz. And that was, that was for us a little bit alienating. And I found myself, you know, for example, on Shabbat, which is really your main shul, I, I'm a daily minion goer. Yeah. But, uh, but in Shabbat, we would go to whatever shul, you know, I got up at 7.15, so I'd go to that shul. And I got to, you know, 8 o'clock, and I'd go to the Shtiblach, you know, which had this, like, like nonstop... It was a little bit like that. And, and I found that people were not really looking to embrace. We're a young couple. Uh, I remember we, when we made Aliyah, um, I was 29. My wife was uh, 22 still. And uh, we had a kid and she was pregnant. And we slept on air mattress for 56 days because we, le- we left in the middle of a massive, massive snowstorm. So our lift got delayed. So um, what really amazes me about the 56 days in the air mattresses, I go camping now all the time. And not <laughs> once has it even made through the night. How the heck did we have 56 days of an air mattress? I wish we could regurgitate that experience for our camping trips now. But <laughs> Obviously, it was a heck of an experience if you remember that it was exactly 56 days. Yeah, I, I remember because we, like, we were counting the days until the lift came like in. Scratching <laughs> things on the wall of your room, you know, like yeah. in prison. I know, and she was pregnant as well. <laughs> right. Oh, um, but, uh, but in any event, so I, f- I found that Yerushalayim for, uh, was, was uh, not the warmest of places at that time. I think it's changed quite substantially now because the Shul we used to daven in Ramban 
was like this old yucky shul, you know, a little bit um, uh, very stiff and, uh, and, and not particularly, well, they were not very nice people, but it was, it was not the kind of place that, that uh, a young couple would, would uh, feel embraced by. And now, you know, Rabbi Lau, who has since left, turned into this bustling, uh, you know, real community center. Right. And, and when I heard that Ramban Shul turned into like one of the epicenters of Jewish cultural life in Jerusalem, I said, whoa, there's no way that's true. But, it, but it, sure enough, it was. Yeah. And uh, back then, that wasn't the case. It was not the case. So, so we were looking for community. You know, I, I, listen, it's natural culturally to, to, to seek what you've always experienced. And then uh, we moved out to Beit Shemesh. We had some friends who had moved here and uh, we came for Shabbat. And we liked it. We also liked the idea of a, of a suburban house, you know, a, a private house with a garden. Um, you know, went to the nice last family. And, and I grew up in the suburbs, so, right. so urban living wasn't really uh, optimal for me. You know, for me, the optimal living is you live in suburbia, but close enough to the city where you can enjoy the culture of the city. So this, so this is when? This is, we're now in like 97, 98? So we, we, well, we got married in 91. We four and a half years in the States. Um, we made Aliyah in February 96. And we were in Jerusalem for three and a half years. Right. And, and I will confess that, that, that at certain points during those years, um, uh, we, we did have, uh, we did entertain the, the idea of perhaps going back. My brother had just bought a house in, in Muncie, this massive, massive uh, piece of property. I always loved property. And I was, you know, I've been an outdoors guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember when he, when he moved there, all the shuls sent him these fruit baskets, you know, come join us. And I said, wow, what a contrast. And it was really kind of uh, disturbing to me. But then once we moved to Beit Shemesh, it was like that we really found that, that, uh, that sense of vibrant and warm community that we were seeking. And as you would, as you would imagine, people who make Aliyah, generally speaking, have a certain sense of values. So uh, it was an exceptionally warm community, very non-pretentious. One of the things that always impressed me about this community, there were a lot of successful and extremely smart people in this, in this community. But you know, you know, in America, when you go to shul, you, uh, you never get past of what do you do? That's the first question you ever ask somebody, sure. you know, you know about their, prof- sure. their profession, which I think somehow maybe subliminally translates into, you know, are you wealthy enough for me to, 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 to warrant the continuation of this conversation? Or, or, or how do I fit into this conversation based on how rich you are? Right? Exactly, exactly. Very, very much like that. Yeah. But in Israel, it was really just a non-issue. Like, for example, the people on the boards in America, it's axiomatic, are always like the wealthy guys who can tell the rabbi what to do. No Here was the guys who wanted to be Osek and Sarchet Sibor. So I always love the unpretentiousness of Israel. Yeah. It's, it's become a little bit more stratified and hierarchical, you know, obviously, as we get more sophisticated. Um, but still, there's, um, um, you know, in Israel, there's, uh, there's uh, that, that sense of uh, the haves and the have-nots, at least in terms of the social uh, framework, is much less pronounced than it is in the States. And I, and I happen to like that very much. Yeah. So, okay, so let's... Uh, I'm sorry, but I need to go back. I need to go way back. So you explained that, that when you were growing up, your house was Grand Central Station in terms of all sorts of Jews coming through. That was, that was part of uh, the, the, what formed who you are. Um, but you didn't talk about like your thoughts on the concept of living in Israel when you were a kid, when you were a teenager, when you were in your early 20s. Like, how did it fit in? Was it even on your radar screen? Or... Did you just find someone who, and you were like, I need to go where she wants me to go? Like, how did, how did it work for you? And that's a great question. I, I, I think of the three kids, I was the most inclined. You know, I had uh, this passion for literature. So, mm-hmm. you know, I loved, uh, 
I loved, I read everything I could get my hands on in Israel. You know, every uh, Golda Meir and Abba Ibn book and Leon Uris. And, you know, so I was always uh, scintillated by the, by the prospect, by the heroism of Israel. You know, the, uh, I mean, obviously as a teenager, you know, there's nothing cooler than an Israeli soldier. Right. So, uh, so there's a certain mystique and romance uh, associated with Israel. Um, I came here for the first time when I was 14. I had a fantastic, fantastic summer. And then, uh, and then came again in, my, uh, in the summer of my junior year in college. We had volunteered in an army program. Um, and, uh, and again, I think it was always a sort of, wow, that'd be wonderful, but I wasn't making specific plans to do so. I went to law school in the States and stuff like that. And, you know, you can, you can transfer any professional, you know, with, uh, with the right amount of aggravation, ultimately. <laughs> but, uh, but, but my plans weren't specifically geared towards making Aliyah. But if you would have asked me when I was 18, would you like to live in Israel, you know, at some point, I would have certainly said yes. Really? I, yes. However, um, I probably was not one of these Bnei Akiva kids who was like, okay, after high school, I'm going to do uh, machal and, you know, do hakshara. I wasn't like that. Um, and probably in, in large measure, that was because I, I, never, I was never in a framework which really promoted that. You know, Bnei Akiva was not available in Suffolk County, Long Island. Um, and, uh, you know, again, we went to a school where even though it was an Orthodox school, technically, we were the only Shomer Shabbos sure. family in the entire school. Sure. So, you know, so our, our um, orientation was Kiruv for the most part. Um, you know, I went to uh, MTA and then, and then YU. And, uh, you know, in YU, most people were focused on, on uh, upward mobility and getting to professional schools, medical school, law school, you know, accounting or whatever it is. And uh, it was also pre-Nefesh Benefesh. So right. I don't think that that uh, Aliyah was, was such a palpable concern or, or issue for so many American Jews the way it is today. You know, now it's, it's hard, it's hard, I'd be hard-pressed to imagine that anybody, for example, who grew up in my background going to YU doesn't at least have it as a, as, as a thought because, again, the, the, um, the logistics are so much easier. I mean, we made Aliyah, and, uh, and I asked the guy uh, at the airport, you know, you get two that zoot at the airport, you know, with a, with a cup of petal, and I asked the guy, uh, you know, how many people have made Aliyah? He says, he says, I think you're the only North Americans this month. Wow. You know, we certainly were the only ones that week. Now, yeah. you know, Nefesh Benefesh comes in and does everything in a streamlined fashion. So I think, I think that one of the great uh, innovations is that uh, of Nefesh Benefesh, I'm going to start from obviously bringing numbers, is they've, they've made Aliyah much more of a conversation among people in my, uh, in my genre. Probably an underappreciated impact of Nefesh Benefesh, right? I think so. I think so. The people look at the actual numbers and say, well, you know, it's, I mean, I, I don't know how many thousands. It's certainly in the, you know, in the thousands. I, I, maybe it's in the tens of thousands. Um, but I think that, uh, again, it impacts mostly um, Orthodox Jews. You know, for example, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but I would have to guess that, uh, that well over, you know, 80% of, of uh, North American Jews who come to Israel are probably Orthodox. Interestingly enough, Goyle, it wasn't always that way. You know, I, I play in this baseball league, and uh, there, there, out of like 12 teams in the league, there was only one, we were the only religious team. We, we knew that because we would dive in Marv after the game. And they're all and, English and, and yeah, we would always ask them, you guys want to join us? And no one ever wanted to. And I said, I said, where are all these Americans, all these like non-religious Americans coming from? You know, I've never, you know, they don't live in our community. And it turned, you know, in the aftermath of the Six-Day War, you know, the, uh, the euphoria of the uh, like late 60s, early 70s, before the Yom Kippur War, there were, you know, uh, Aliyah was a possible was was a, a possibility for conservative and uh, less affiliated Jews as well. I think that's no longer the case. On the one hand, the, the positive of Nefesh Benefesh is it's made it much more part of the uh, of of the conversation. It's in your radar screen, but I think it reaches out mostly. And I think that's not a Nefesh Benefesh issue. I think that's a general issue. Um, I think I think that Aliyah speaks mostly to religious people for ideological reasons, and and I think that's uh, that's somewhat unfortunate. I, I think uh, I think that you know you're right and you're not right. I think I think that um, 
because of the product itself, if we can call Israel a product, right? The product itself is a religious item. Let's, let's just call it what it is. Um, we pray for a return to Zion, right? We, we are, we're yearning for the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash, and, and it's, it's so much more a part of our daily life if we grow up uh, what we would call Orthodox, um, whereas for someone who's not, it's not part of their daily life growing up. And so it's to a degree, it's sort of a self-fulfilling, like literally a self-fulfilling prophecy <laughs> um, for Orthodox people to be more inclined to come here. At the same time, I'm amazed in, in my travels how many uh, uh, non-observant Americans I run into in my day-to-day business life. It's amazing. Right. Young right. people, old, older people, like there's, there's a magnetism to this place. You have to admit, in general, it's a great product, Israel. I mean, it's like yeah, you know, for so a Jewish I, person. Yeah, so, so actually, as, I thought, as, oh, just one more thing. And, you know, like I used to say to to um, to my brother, who's who's not religious, Israel's the best place for you because uh, in the states you're trying to make it seem like you're not Jewish. In Israel, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. There are all sorts of Jews here. No, uh, it's okay. Anyway, sorry. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you're talking about the the uh, the idea that the religious people find it. A, you know, it's a, it's a religious product essentially. So I'll tell you. So I, I kind of felt that way initially, but I no longer feel that way. Great. Um, what, I don't mean that my religious connection to Israel has been diminished. You know, quite <laughs> contrary. But I think it used to be the case. Uh, you know, we moved here in '96. So again, that's you know, that's 25 years ago. And it's a dramatically different country. I think that the perception back then was, uh, it's sort of axiomatic that you move to Israel um, for ideological or religious reasons. And of course, you're going to give up on creature comforts and your, you know, your quality of life is not going to be as good as it would be in the, in the golden of Medina, right? But, you know, but, you, but you're, uh, you're turned on by this, uh, this ideological fervor and so on. But the truth of the matter is, I think that I, I no longer believe that to be true. In other words, yes, I do believe there's a strong ideological reason to live here, but I think the quality of life here, you know, inherently is fantastic. First of all, a weather is unbelievable here. You know, like I run 12 months a year here. You know, I mean, I mean, I've, I've you know, I've traveled a lot in in my uh, in my various uh, business permutations, and when you go to America in in January, February, even March, it is just brutal. I mean, it's 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 uh, it's you 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 open the car door and you you know you go to, you know to go from the parking lot to CVS right. and you are suffering. Right. You rarely have that. Okay, it's hot, you know, but you, but but again, hot is something you can deal with. Um, so I don't. Uh, I think that that's one major factor. Plus, but I think like life is incredibly bustling. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of opportunity here. It's much easier to network here than it is in the states, for example. Look, Gold, I tell you, it's, uh, my wife and I just took a little mini vacation. Um, the uh, the gears ride just finished a couple of weeks ago, and we worked very hard. Yeah. So we thought we'd uh, take a little mini vacation. We had it scheduled for during the war, so we had to uh, put it off. Um, and then we just so we went to the Crown Plaza in Tel Aviv, right along the Tel Aviv beachfront. Sure. And you know, it's funny, um, I, it's hard, I'm hard-pressed to imagine a more vibrant, pulsating city. Even New York and where I come from was not, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't uh, compare to that. I mean, I, you walk down at 6 o'clock in the morning, there's like already 15 beach volleyball games going on, an endless array of runners and guys in their electric scooters and bikes, you know. The, the incredibly beautiful people. You can't believe these are Jews. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's 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 uh, the the you know surf schools and yoga and Zumba, 
and it's interesting, and, and it's you know, a decidedly non-religious uh, you know environment. No yeah. And you know, and I remember once upon a time I would look at it and saying, "Wow, how did how did Jews become so uh, so secular and so divorced from from core religious values?" And I said to myself, "I said, you know what? That's ridiculously judgmental, and it's simply wrong." I said, "You know, I said really the the uh, the sense of astonishment should be." How did a people who 75 years ago, you know, experienced the Holocaust build such a vibrant culture? I mean, here I, I'm sitting on my balcony, you know, on the 16th floor of this hotel, you know, right. davening. Right. And I'm looking at, at this, this spectacular array of skyscrapers on one side, the Mediterranean on the other side with this, with this th you know, endless throng of, of uh, vibrant humanity going down. And it's just like I just say, wow, what a miracle, what a privilege to be here. So I, th I think I would, I would um, contest the idea that you just move to Israel because that's where a Jew should be. I think, I think that uh, Israel has incredible benefits as a lifestyle. Like, for example, um, I, I, I've discovered that every, every time I go to the States, there's less and less that appeals to me. And it used to be like consumerism was like, you know, you went to America to buy everything in America. Sure, sure. Shopping is fantastic here and the prices have really come down. I mean, there's certain things, you know, you'll still pay 10 times more for ibuprofen, you know, um, but... Uh, if, they, if, they, if, they, if they hand it to you from behind the counter, right? <laughs> That's true. You can't even take it off the shelf yourself. Um, you know, but, but uh, I, think, uh, I think that they're really, for me, um, much, much less uh, to, to uh, attract us. And then, for example, we used to be kind of scared to bring our kids back to the States because if the States was so big and beautiful and you can get cherries for, you know, for a buck, uh, for a buck a pound, you know, during, uh, you know, all year round, right. you know. So you'd say, well, wow, you know, if, if everything's better in America, why, uh, why stay in Israel? But I think of my six kids, I don't think anything would contemplating moving back. And I, and I think that uh, that's not necessarily because uh, we've been successful in, in, uh, in, in uh, inculcating our ideology in them, but rather because they see life here as, as, uh, as an extraordinarily good place to live. And as, as the, the Western world goes through what it seems to be continuing to go through, the quality of life here, in contrast, is, is so clearly better. It's so clearly better in terms of what our priorities are in life, where, where we focus our energies, what's important, what's not important. The depth of conversations you have with teenagers here. <laughs> These are people who, because they're going to the army or national service or whatever they're going to be doing, um, they are forced to think about life. They're forced to think about what it means to serve their country, and, and it just, it's just a deeper place. I, I agree with you, but I, but I want to point out, like for example, I, I have a 21-year-old son who, who's uh, in the Army right now and uh, you know, spent the war uh, half in the Gaza border, you know, maybe waiting to, to be uh, called in, and then the other half in Somatapuach, which is, also which is, which is uh, perhaps even worse than the Gaza border. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, very difficult. You know, so on the one hand, you, know, you say, well, you're very proud. Is the, the, imagine the maturity of a 21-year-old kid. You know, a 21-year-old kid in America is guzzling, you know, is guzzling kegs in you know, a fraternity. <laughs> um, but the truth is that um, it doesn't turn them into machines. You know, they're still fun-loving and, no uh, you know, with a tremendous passion for living. It's just a certain maturity. You know, one of the corollaries to that is that after they finish the army or Hezra or whatever they do, um, they're not in a rush to get their life started. You know, I find in America, um, you know, you, I needed to be a lawyer 23 and then be making, you know, six figures by the time I was 25 and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. You know, in Israel, people seem to be less in a rush. And I think I'm wondering whether that's because people understand the preciousness of uh, of life, you know, given the fact that, uh, you know, every 18 year old kid who's uh, who serves in the army is is uh, confronted at least with at least in theory with a sense of mortality. So uh, so there is there is that there is a certain uh, maturity. On the other hand, um, there, there's also uh, 
in a certain sense, it sort of diminishes maturity, for, for example, because I find, like, for example, financial independence here. You know, in Israel, uh, parents are expected to, to um, maintain a certain financial responsibility for their kids much longer than they would in America. But in large measure, that's because, you know, you're finishing Army 21, your first start in university. You know, you're, you're generally speaking not going to be financially self-sufficient until your late 20s, b'matzavatov. So. Right. When yeah. I finished college, like, that was it. Exactly. Your parents are like, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm never giving you a penny again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more from Chaim Wisman. Um, let's go back to um, that summer when you were 14. Do you remember it? I do. What was Israel to you while you were here? What, what were you doing? What was interesting to you? Did anything about it uh, strike you the wrong way? Like, what was that experience for you? Um, it, it was very exotic. The whole uh, the whole Middle Eastern flavor. I mean, uh, you know, like falafel was just a spectacular. Hummus was like this unbelievable delicacy. Every every uh, Israeli soldier you know looked like a Superman to me. Now I look at them. These guys are like you know 130 pounds, scrawny guys, and you know and they're uh, you know they're uh, with peach fuzz. But then they looked like you know like like absolute supermen. Um, you know, we went to all the uh, tourist spots. My my aunt lived here, and uh, you know she she was the one who hosted us. She was a, you know, an American girl who made Aliyah in, uh, went to Barilan and wound up marrying a, a man who ultimately became a Chaver Knesset, Shimon Ochayan. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, so, so we stayed in there, the house in Rishon. It was very modest, you know, like a tiny little apartment. And, uh, you know, there was, wasn't room for all of us. I slept on the living room floor all summer. And uh, she took us to Masada and to Jerusalem. And just the, the, um, the uh, sort of um, Middle Eastern flavor, going to the Shuk and the Kotel were just these larger-than-life experiences. So it was, uh, it was very spectacular. I made a point of, uh, of playing basketball every single day in, uh, in the local park in Rishon, so I got a lot of interaction with the, uh, with the locals. And people were just friendly and warm, and, and uh, you know, there was no uh, division between religious and non-religious. You know, right. I was work keeper. Most of the kids there, you know, Rishon was a very uh, sort of secular city. Sure. Um, so I loved it. Um, would I say that I left that, uh, that summer saying, uh, I, I got to be living here when I'm an adult? Probably not, but I was definitely attracted. In other words, the romance had definitely begun, um, and I was uh, I was intrigued. You know, I, I, again, I, it felt to me like uh, Israel was a nation of heroes, right. and uh, you know, and if you th I think about it, if I, if I'm not jaded, you know, where where you're just familiarity breeds, if not contempt, certainly uh, it it, uh, it removes the luster and the awe. I would still say this is still a nation of heroes. You know, your average, your average Israeli 50-year-old guy has served in the army and, uh, you know, and probably seen a little bit of military action and has overcome incredible amounts of challenges and has also endured the fact that uh, he's hated by the vast majority of humanity. You know, <laughs> speaking, of, sure. speaking of that, I, mean, I think to myself, like, I'm an American, I'm an Israeli, and I'm religious. I've got to be one of the most hated people on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, think, I think, unfortunately, it's true, but... Um uh, I guess that's for different podcasts, <laughs> um, not, not to be addressed uh, in the time we have today. Um, let's talk about your experience once you arrived in Beit Shemesh. You know, there's, there's another member of the community, of your community, who once said to me, you know him very well, uh, Rich, uh, he once said to me, you know, I was actually thinking of going back to the States, but the running is just so great here that I just had to stay. <laughs> so talk about... Uh, life since you've arrived in Beit Shemesh, I guess it's now been over 20 years. Um, uh, talk about um, uh, the whole running initiative, uh, what it's done for you, what it's done for others, 
and, uh, and what life has been like here for the last 20 years. Okay, so you know, as, I, as I told you earlier, uh, we moved to Beit Shemesh because we were really looking for a sense of community. And when we got here, uh, you know, we, we had a nice little private house. It was fairly inexpensive. I mean, I, I think about what we paid and, and, and consider how my kids are ever going to afford to buy a house, and I wonder how that's ever going to happen. Right. Um, but it was, it was uh, fairly inexpensive then. And um, it was a real sense of community. You know, the uh, people really welcomed us. We got here, tons of invitations. You know, you don't have to cook a Shabbos meal for the first, you know, three months that you're here. Um, the shul didn't yet exist, so there's a sense of community building, which always appealed to me. I always had this sort of like pioneering spirit, so I love the idea of building a community as opposed to walking into this, you know, sort of white shoe, well-established community. Back in those days, we davened in, uh, in, uh, in, the, in the winter, we would uh, divide and go to different houses. And in the summer, we all got together, we stayed in a tent. Um, you know, this, sort of uh, like the corona time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> sort of foreshadowing the, the glory that was uh, corona. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, then we've, we, we uh, built a shul together, and it was a really a, a sense of, uh, a, a real sense of community building. Everyone, every member of the community, without exception, contributed to that shul, and, you know, and some of us solicited donations. You know, some gave more, some gave less, and some got, you know, went to their relatives and contacts and so on. But the shul got built, you know, internally. Not, not there was no, uh, you know, no uh, external gvir who gave a million dollars and built right. the shul. This was really just a community initiative. Um, so that was really quite wonderful. Um, and I loved everything about, about being a homeowner. Um, we had uh, five or six kids have been born here. Um, the, uh, at some point, um, I think that Beit Shemesh is sort of a sleepy city, it's not, so, not, not so much anymore, but when we moved here, it was roughly 30,000 residents. I think it's 130,000 now, and I think that's... And growing. And growing. <laughs> I think it's going to be 250,000 in, in seven or eight years. If you yeah. look what's going on in Dalid, you know, you'll realize it's probably no exaggeration. Um, but, uh, but it's not a city that's bustling with culture. You know, this is not New York City or Tel Aviv or, you know, or even Modin. But one of the things it did have was this uh, spectacular array of, of, uh, of trails. It's, it's you know, nestled in the Judean Hills and uh, quite beautiful. And, when, and, and a couple of years after I moved here, I, uh, I discovered running almost by accident. I was actually a, a speed walker on, on uh, the treadmill in a gym. Interesting. And, uh, and, and I had a guy who I used to go with who said, what, he said, what are you, a wimp? Why don't you just run a little bit? So I said, okay, fine, I'd run a mile. And um, you, you had been an athlete in college, right? I was, like, yeah, I was a wrestler in college. It's not like you were uh, speed walking because you didn't have the physical abilities to be a runner. No, I, I, was, I was never a couch potato. I was always <laughs> right. athletic, you know, um, but more power sports. I was a baseball mm -hmm. player. I was, you know, a wrestler in college and so on. Um, and I always stayed fit, um, but, uh, but I'd never done running. And uh, he, he said, come on, just why don't you run? So I ran a mile on the treadmill, and that felt fine. So I did two miles and, you know, and eventually worked my way up to, to uh, six and a half miles. And I felt like a real stud. I said, wow, I'm a great runner now. Because I, I would do a fairly nice clip on the treadmill. And then, uh, and then decided that somebody said, well, why don't you run outside? And I went outside and I encountered Beit Shemesh Hills for the first time. And I said, what the heck? <laughs> I literally, I, was, I felt like you know, a guy who was so incredibly slower than me, you know, was making it up the hills. And I just had to walk up the hills, really embarrassing. So, uh, so I realized that uh, that running that running uh, in the Beit Shemesh terrain was going to be uh, was going to, to demand a different level of fitness. Um, but eventually, I started doing it, and uh, and you know my personality. You know, most people who, who know me will uh, will confirm this. Whenever I get into something, I really get into something, and uh, so I adopted running with this incredible passion. And there were a couple of guys here in our community who ran. 
but I sort of uh, created a framework. You know, we decided we're going to run a marathon, and that was, uh, you know, the, the we've done run, run dozens of marathons since. But I remember the excitement of that first one, where you just you don't really know what you're doing. You know, you're it's exciting to figure out what you're going to eat. You know, how are you going to hydrate during the marathon? You know, what kind of calories you're going to get at the pit stops and so on. This was Tiberius, was your this first is, uh, one? Yeah, 2000, 2003. Right. And uh, my wife actually ran it as well. She was she had never run more than uh, more than 13 miles before, and she said, "Oh, it's okay, spontaneously she'll do." And she ran 26 miles. And when I finished, I, I went back to the room to shower, and I said, yeah, i got plenty of time. There's no way she's going to be able to finish it. I guess, so I, then I sauntered back there. She'd been, she was, like, waiting there at the finish line, you know, looking like a, like a, like a rose petal, like nothing had <laughs> happened. Um, but uh, but th there were three of us that first year, four the second year. Five years later, there was, we brought 74 runners. I, I, I started eventually coaching the club. You know, I, I, uh, I was sort of an autodidact and read, you know, read dozens of books and, and then eventually started writing art articles about exercise physiology and training programs. And it was just amazing. We just, uh, we got together a minimum of four times a week and the uh, Fridays were a long run. And I, I developed something called the Adventure Trail Running Series, where during the week I would do a little research, and guys would show up at 5 o'clock in the morning at my house on Friday. Right. And they didn't know where they were going. I would just take them on an adventure. Wow. You know, I had already done this during the week. Sure. And you would know, go somewhere, like, you know, somewhere between 9 and 14 or 15 miles. And we just explored the country that way. And uh, it was just it was amazing. You felt like this was a Zionist enterprise. You know, you felt like you were, like, uh, in the footsteps of the prophet sort of thing. And... Uh, and there was this incredible bond with the, the running people. The, Aviv, we, we used to joke around that Aviv was probably the premier Orthodox running community in the world. At some point... No fair Aviv, the community. No Aviv, yeah, this, this community. There's, there were probably uh, no less than 30 marathon runners in a community of no more than a couple hundred people. Wow. So it was, uh, it was quite remarkable, and it became a thing to do. And in fact, now, now there's a youth division run by Jay Wolf, and it's very, very popular. In other words, it's a thing. Being a runner in Beit Shemesh is a thing, so I'd like to think that we, uh, that we were instrumental in making that happen. Um, I loved it, but there's also this, this uh, fantastic bond. I mean, this one, you get up at, at 4, 3 in the morning and you run to Rehovot, you know, with someone, you're instantly going to bond with that person. And I found one of the also incredible things about running was that it created bonds with people who you would ordinarily have nothing in common with. That's you know, right. people who you were not religiously connected to, ideologically, politically. And, you know, you've, but nevertheless, you develop these really deep bonds with these people. And, you know, and I realized from there that, that sport has this ability to create connections that virtually nothing else does. You know, whereas most things are divisive, sport is an incredible unifier. And, uh, and, and as a result, I, I uh, developed all these clubs and things like that because I felt that, the, uh, that it was a metaphor for, for certain things, not just in terms of unity, but also in terms of, for example, running a marathon. I remember when I was 15 years old, I, uh, I was out on a plane with a guy who'd run the New York City Marathon that day. Right. I remember he bought me a Sprite uh, on a... It was, remember, remember People's Express? Do you remember that airline? <laughs> yes, yes. So, uh, so I was flying back to Baltimore. It was my one, my one real year in a yeshiva in Neri Sroil. And, uh, and he'd run the New York City Marathon that day. And I said, wow, I'm sitting next to Superman. You ran 26 miles. That's did, he, like, did he have the medal around his neck still? Uh, I don't remember <laughs> whether he did or not. I'm sure he did. Okay, but it's unfathomable that a human being could do that. Right. Okay, right. and then, you know, and then, and then uh, once I did it, I realized, you know, I'm not Superman. I can do, if I can do this, others can do it. And so I realized that when you got the people to overcome their, their uh, internal barriers or their self-imposed barriers, so I felt it was a metaphor. Think about it. If you can, if you can achieve what you thought was was uh, outside the realm of possibility, you know, in the in the physical realm, how many other things are you negating for yourself, sort of independently, without really knowing? With you know, it's it sort of opens up the world of possibilities. 
if you, uh, if you overcome what you believe to be an obstacle. Right. So I always felt that running was this incredible metaphor. And, I, and, and, and people came to me, oh, I can't run. I have knees, bad knees. I got a bad back. I've, you know, I like to walk or I like to play volleyball or racquetball. You know, and I always delighted in taking someone who felt that they were totally unathletic and could never run and had getting to run full marathons. That was, that was unbelievable. Now, I don't argue you need to run full marathons to, to be in great shape. In fact, many will argue that running full <laughs> marathons is, is a stupid thing to do. Right. Um, I happen to love the challenge and the, you know, the camaraderie of, of this uh, sort of you know, uh, gut-wrenching experience. But, uh, but still, there was something very powerful about the ability to overcome and, uh, and, I, and I also love the fact that people were so incredibly proud of themselves for having achieved something that they thought was outside the realm of, uh, of, uh, of their particular you know, realm of possibility. So, right, right. so running was a, very, was a very powerful thing in, 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 uh, in terms of our sense of community here. You know, for example, it's uh, about uh, 13 years ago. My daughter's 20, yeah, about, uh, about 13 years ago. My daughter uh, had a bat mitzvah, and my wife was, was baking for weeks. And she would not let me touch a single cookie. She'd like, th that cookie was going to be the one that made, it, that made uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, kiddush, not, no, uh, you know, no, no one would have anything to eat there. So naturally, sure enough, after the kiddush, we had like, I don't know, about 300 kilos worth of uh, pastry left. So she says, why don't you invite the guys over for kiddush? So I said, okay, great idea. So I did that. And I said, well, listen, we're, we're having a kiddush already. Why not, why not learn already? So uh, we decided to learn, and, uh, and 12 years later, we've gone through most of Shas Mishnayis. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weekly Shabbos, uh, you know, Shabbos shear. It rotates from, uh, from house to house, and, and the person hosting usually gives the shear. But the beauty is, like, here are people who are, again, ideologically, are not necessarily the, you know, the uh, fitting like a glove, your, your, uh, your sort of natural soulmate, oh, that guy, I really get that guy, or that's the kind of guy I would want to be friends with. But there's this natural bond, and it and it and it extends beyond beyond being on the uh, you know on the on the track or in the trails and stuff like that. So that's uh, that's one thing, and uh, that that uh, running is really provided, and it was a real strong sense of community, and uh, and certainly my closest friends were my running buddies because, um, in large measure, how often you get a chance to spend uh, you know at our age with our level of responsibility six or seven hours a week with someone you know in uh, in a social framework. So it, it's been a very powerful. Uh, Thing. And I always tell people who, who make Aliyah, I said it's very important to get yourself a chevra of, uh, first of all, to be involved in, in, uh, in something healthy. Right. Biking is another one, right? Not everyone is a runner, but biking is something that virtually anybody can do. And Israel is a mountain biking paradise. It's a very well-established community. Of, it's, of it's, it's, it's acknowledged as such on a global level. Yes. Like international cyclists come to Israel. Um, I, I don't know about international mountain bikers, but cyclists certainly come to Israel to train. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's, uh, it's a very well-developed trail network, and uh, there are thousands and thousands of, of mountain bikers. They can be much friendlier than road bikers. Um, <laughs> and, but I always tell people, you're coming here, you know, get yourself involved in a chevra. You know, if you, if you, have a, if you come on a Tuesday morning, get together with six or seven guys who are going to show you, uh, you know, a trail that you've never seen before, and you'll, you know, you'll take a finjan and make a little uh, Turkish coffee afterwards. Right. I said, that will be a very, very powerful element in your, in your uh, klita. And, uh, and in gears, it's actually one of the things that we do. We, we, uh, your recent olim, they are the, the classic, uh, you know, uh, uh, recruiter, recruitee, I should say, for, yeah. for gears, because they really, um, they, it really resonates with them, this model of, you know, this chevra this of guys who are involved in something fun and, and philanthropic and... And, uh, and sometimes challenging. 
right? Which, always challenging. So, so. <laughs> always challenging, and it's it's and and uh, just it, it's it's a sense of privilege. Look, I always moved to Israel for one for one idea. Ultimately, I said, look. Again, remember I, I told you that it was sort of axiomatic you'd be giving up in the creature comforts. Sure. And that was certainly true back then. Um, but I said, the, the, that's, the, that's the give. What's the take? The take is that you get to be associated with a, with a, a caliber of people that you would not necessarily be associated with in the States or elsewhere. Um, and, uh, and, and by and large, I found that to be true. And I don't mean that to be, uh, I don't mean that, that soapbox, judgmental, you know, well, if you're, if you're a good person, you'll make Aliyah, by definition. I don't, I don't feel that way at all. In fact, it's always really irritated me when, uh, when Olim get on the soapbox and talk about how, uh, how American Jews who don't move to Israel are really not committed Jews at all and things like that. It really has always irritated me. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, of, of live and let live. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, um, I do think that, there, that, that, uh, that people who make Aliyah here, for the most part, at least from North America, have given up on, on more lucrative and perhaps more comfortable opportunities. And that says something about a person. So I think that there's, a, there's a something very powerful about living in that kind of environment. I think this community that, that we're in, the Fe'aviv, and I'm sure the one you're in, Scheinfeld, as well, are, you're, you're, you're uh, surrounded by people like that. It makes, and it makes your, your, uh, your uh, daily uh, prayer in shul you know, a much more powerful experience because you're saying, wow, you know, that's a guy I really respect, as yeah, opposed to, right. you know, there's, there's the guy who's, you know, who's engaged in insurance fraud. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to stick with running for one more second. Um, because in addition to the success you've had in building a culture of running in Beit Shemesh, um, I've noticed, because I, I've, I've run a few marathons thanks to you myself, um, I've noticed that, that you're known on a national level here. Like when, when you go to, to Tiberias, the, the organizers of that race know who you are. They know Chaim Wisman, they know the Beit Shemesh Running Club. And it's an other example, you know, I, the first time I watched Israeli basketball, I said to myself, I could play in that league. <laughs> like, I could, I could play in that league. I'm as good as these guys. Um, now, I'm not, I'm not as good as the top, the top guys, but, but I could be a professional basketball player. I could have been back then a professional basketball player. You're, you're a great player in your, in your I, I was, like I said, I could have been a professional basketball player you, you in Israel. Did you play college ball? No, I didn't, I didn't play college ball. Um, anyway. <laughs> Um, the ability to make an impact in this country, because it's such a small country, and such, not to be uh, uh, under-stressed, such a young country still, the ability to make an impact on a national level here is, is significant. Absolutely. So maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Interesting. Um, so, you know, it's funny, when, when um, we, we, our first marathon was back in 2003, and there were, there's only one marathon in Israel, it was Tiberias. And there were 425 runners. There were 25 women. I think my wife was the first woman in Israeli history to run a marathon in a skirt and a hair covering. Interesting. If you run around Beit Shemesh right now, take a drive right now, you will see <laughs> dozens of women running right. with hair covering and skirts. That's right. And in fact, we have you know, a world class. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have an Olympic quality runner who runs in a skirt and you know right. and hair covering. Right. Um, it was very very. You really kind of knew everybody back then. Um, you know, you're alluding to the fact that maybe I was nationally known. Uh, I, you know, I, again, I got very involved and I was uh, sort of a, a running evangelist because I believe so powerfully in, in, in its ability to impact your life in so many arenas. And I would write all kinds of running programs and articles and give them out for free. You know, I, I, I've never believed that you have to make money in everything you're good at doing. In fact, quite the contrary. You know, as, as some of the best things that you do, you should do for free. Mm. Um, one, one way of giving back, that, uh, you know, for some of the many gifts that you've been, in, in, you know, imbued with. 
But um, so, you know, it's, it's not hard to build an empire when you're giving it out for free. Uh, much more challenging, <laughs> I can tell you from experience, to build an empire when you're actually charging for it. Yeah. Um, but in any event, so I, so I, I kind of, you know, I, I sort of coached everybody for free. And, you know, and it, and it had a, a, a significant impact. And there were people from Rehovot and Zichron Yaakov and Gush and Yerushalayim and Modi'in and so on who followed our programs. And, you know, as I said, at one point, we, I think, I think uh, affiliated with the Beit Shemesh Running Club, we're over 10% of all the nationwide runners in Tiveria. Really? Since then, it's grown exponentially. I sure. mean, first of all, most, a lot of guys here have gotten older and no longer want to do marathons, and they're like, you know, late 50s. You know, there's uh, still, myself and two other guys are still uh, always craving that next adventure. Yeah. We don't run quite as fast as we used to, but, but we, uh, we seek the adventures. Like, uh, there's one marathon, the Tanakh Marathon. Are you familiar with that yeah, one? Yeah, sure, in the Shomron. Oh, that is nuts. Gold, that is nuts. <laughs> oh, I've heard that the Tanakh 10K is nuts, so I can only imagine what the no, full like, 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 People don't think of Jerusalem as like the ultimate marathon. <laughs> right. The, Jerusalem is like a cakewalk compared to this. <laughs> well, for one thing, it's, it's, it's on Chalamod Sukkot, so by the end of the marathon, it's 95 degrees. You've it's been like, eating Sukkot, so you've been eating a oh, lot. Oh, that's true. I'm very good. But it's literally, 30, I'd say 35 out of the 42 kilometers are, are, are uphill, and I'm not talking about little speed bumps. It is just a that's grueling, incredible. brutal marathon. But again, it's like one of these things, you, you're running in an area you never would have, you know, the, never would run it ordinarily. It's, there must be, I don't know, there must be 1,500 soldiers along the routes to secure it. Sure. It's, yeah. uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, it's, it's um, I, I think that... Uh, you know, the, the sense of adventure that you have in running the Holy Land is really uh, quite powerful. And, you know, we, we, uh, every time I find a new trail, you know, I'm always eager. Like, if, if, I, if I see something I haven't seen before, I say, oh, I, I got to go up there. My wife already knows, you know. If we're going somewhere and I see, uh, and I see some sort of like, like little uh, alcove or, you know, off in a forest, she knows I'm, I'm going to run it, you know. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, if it doesn't look too rocky, maybe we'll drive it. You know, we don't have a four by four. But One uh, time we, we were driving to the Hermon, <coughs> you know, the, the last maybe six or seven kilometers, it's just uphill, oh, right? Yeah. And I was thinking like, I'd love to run this someday. <laughs> it's a similar kind of thing. You it see is. everything with running classes. It's true, right? it's true. And then when you drive, all of a sudden you say like, like, for example, a hill you never noticed, you, know, you say, wow, that's a tough hill. <laughs> right? You sort of, like, you, you sort of uh, translate everything to running terms. Um, but uh, you know, now, nowadays there's like you know, seven or eight marathons in Israel and all of them have uh, massive, I mean, the, the running community has probably grown <laughs> by, by, by a factor of 20 at least, you know, since, uh, since we started running. And, and uh, you know, we used to know all the, we used to look at the race results. We knew everybody personally. Uh, Rich and I used to, uh, used to sit there and poring over the race results. Hey, look at Lieberman did the, he, uh, he's two minutes slower than last year. Wow. Now we have, you know, now we have no idea. It's just, it's yeah. so large and so much more sophisticated. And, and you also have now many, many world-class runners in Israel. You know, you know the, uh, as, as it's become a more sophisticated environment. So, uh, you know, you have these guys who are doing 207s in Israel, which is, in, you know, unfathomable, but, but right. we used to love to right. go to Tiveria and see the Kenyans and we would uh, sort of, uh, you know, like uh, hobnob with them and uh, watch what they were eating for breakfast and say, maybe I, maybe I should eat that too. But uh, of course, that's where it ended. They were like four hours faster than we were. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, it's unbelievable seeing, you know, when, when they're already coming back and <laughs> it's like, how did they do that? Unbelievable, right? Like they took a ferry across the... It's just uh, incredible. You know. um, okay, I don't want to talk about your kids. But I do want to talk about your kids. What I mean by that is I, I don't want to talk about them. It's none of my business. It's none of the listeners' business. But I know, for example, we made Aliyah from Baltimore. <coughs> Excuse me. When we were in Baltimore, we were sure our sons were going to someday wear black hats. That was the track we were on. And uh, now our sons are not wearing black hats. Um, they're, they're very different from what we had in mind 
which is a sign of immaturity back then to even have something in mind, but whatever. Um, very different than what we thought our kids were going to turn out to be, and yet they're awesome, all of them. Um, you you first got you got married in the states. Did you make aliyah with any kids or one? With yeah, one? we had so, two, we had a two year old. So what what have you seen in terms of your children's development and and the the track they're on versus what maybe you had in mind when you were living in the states or had first made aliyah? Um, it, it, that's a very very good question, Gol, because uh, I, I struggle with this a lot. Um, you know, obviously we're Orthodox. Oh, and uh, sorry, and one more thing. And, and how much of that, if anything, is related to the fact that you live in Israel and, and not the United States? Okay, so, so uh, again, really an excellent question. So um, we, we have six kids, and, uh, you know, thank God all of them are, are, have, have, uh, have followed in our footsteps. All of them are religious, you know, at this point, and, uh, you know, which, which makes me very proud. But I am um, I'm disturbed by the fact that it's, uh, it's very, very difficult uh, to to keep kids religious, and I I, I I know less about the states, and, and, I'm, and I'm actually curious to explore to what extent it's uh, it's difficult. For example, how would your kids look like if they were in Baltimore right now? Um, I know that as as uh, you know, the world is moving very very quickly, um, and uh, you know, it used to be the generations were say ten years. My, tw- my, my oldest, Jonathan, uh, is, is 27 years old. He grew up in an entirely different generation than my 18-year-old. Right. And I have a 9-year-old as well who's growing up in a you know, different planet. Um, so sure. things are moving very quickly. Um, and I think that one of the things that I see, that uh, much to my chagrin, is that it seems like um, this, the, the, uh, the, the current generation of young teenagers, I'm talking 14, 15-year-olds, um, are really struggling with uh, maintaining their religious identity. And uh, and I'm wondering whether or not that's something unique to living in a community that is sort of homogenous, um, or, or just where Judaism is not a particularly um, uh, it's not an issue because it's just a given. Right. You know, sometimes, like for example, if you grew up in a mixed city, right, and you and you, for example, and your sense of religion is a bnei kiva, sometimes you might be you might be uh, required to cling to that with with a greater ferocity. And it may create a greater sense of identity than if it's just always there and it's sort of a given. No so I don't know. I know there is a lot of evidence that all these yeshuvim, where the parents were very, very ideologically committed and, and uniformly religious, they had significant issues with their kids not adopting their lifestyle. Um, so um, I find that I find that disturbing because obviously, to the, you know, obviously, a kid can make their own choices. But whenever if you if you raise your kid in a religious environment and they turn out to be not religious, that is an implicit rejection of your lifestyle. And that's painful, right? You've chosen this because you know you've given your kids the education that you believe you know is is most authentic and most reflective of of, uh, of truth with a capital T. Yeah. And to the extent that they that they um, don't adopt that, they're essentially saying, you know, hey, mom, dad, you were wrong about that, or you know, I don't dig what it is you were uh, you were conveying all that time. And I think I see a lot of that. And again, I'm wondering whether or not that's a uniquely Israeli phenomenon. The fact that people are going into the army or are growing up particularly fast. Um, or, uh, or that is a, a function of growing up in a community which is, which is uh, uniformly religious. Um, I, I was very disturbed one time. I went to a wedding, a, a number of, uh, it was just pre-corona, where it was a, a, somebody from some your neighborhood and somebody from my neighborhood. They're a little bit older, than, like 28, 29 years old. Yeah. And uh, they, I mean, they were so not religious, they wanted to actually get married in Cyprus, but the parents convinced them not to. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I saw kids from our our respective neighborhoods, and 
they weren't even wearing kippahs in, in the chuppah. During the ceremony, which right. Which disturbed me quite a bit. And I said, you know, like, what are these kids so angry about? Right. I, I understand in the Haredi world, for example, if you, you know, you, you turn the screws too hard and there's nowhere to go, a person might say, okay, I might as well rebel because I can't tow the, you know, the straight and narrow. And any slight deviation is considered to be this massive departure. But it seems to me that, that, uh, that in our communities, uh, you know, religion is a non-coercive, you know, largely positive thing. There's no uh, contradiction between between being successful and having fun and 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 still maintaining a religious lifestyle. Right. So I don't. It's 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 uh, it's a little bit mist of a mystery to me why so many kids are are choosing to uh, to to do otherwise. I have a theory about it. You know, if you if you want to hear, I think that ultimately religion is about. Um, delayed gratification, right? Because think about it, what you're saying. You're saying, give up the here and now for something later on, the afterlife, let's say, you know, in, okay. in, in uh, sure. mystical terms. But but think about it. We live in a generation which is so so antithetical to delayed gratification. I mean, think about it. Do you know, I remember when I, this, this is actually a powerful point. When I was 13 years old, I went to a friend who was, who was like the wealthy guy, kid in the class, and he had, <laughs> in his basement, he had a jukebox, Right, remember the old jukeboxes? Yeah, sure. It had a hundred songs. It's like the Beach Boys songs, and I, right. I, 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 the the luxury was unfathomable. I said, "Wow, you can hear whatever you want, whenever you want." A hundred songs. <laughs> I can hear like Surfing USA right now. I just push that button. He says, "Yeah," and I was like, "That's unbelievable!" Right? I mean, I remember like when you, when you could rent a video. Remember, like you'd go to Blockbuster, like one of those like uh, video mats or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, now there's nothing that every kid has at his disposal. You know, from the age of like nine years old, when the kids get their smartphones. Access to every song, every video, every everything. You know, parents are no longer an ins- information source to their kids because, let's face it, it's a technology-driven world. And I guarantee, you know, unless you're an uber techie, your 13-year-old kid is more sophisticated technologically than you are. So, so I think that um, that that the world right now, the 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 instant availability of everything is completely antithetical to religion. So I suspect that's really why our kids are having such a hard time adopting religion. I don't think it's something specifically Israel-based. Um, but it could very well be that that um, that in in uh, in the diaspora, if you're living in sort of a mixed community, you know, just the idea of needing to be identifiably Jewish right. that may that may sort of counteract a little bit. So, so I'm not sure about it. You know, it, it. It's very disturbing to me to to, to contemplate that you may have a better chance of religion, raising your kids religious in the states. I don't know that to be the case. Right, but but, uh, but I guess it also depends on what you, um, I don't want to I don't want to sound uh, like an attorney, but it sounds it depends on your definition of religious. You know, I've had some secular clients who are these beautiful religious people, who treat people properly, who who go about their lives in a in a Torah oriented way. They just happen to not want to keep Shabbat and not want to keep kosher. Yeah, no, that's so, a great point. So that's also part of it. No, I'm, I'm so not suggesting for one yeah, second that, yeah, that. But that, I know that, what you mean when you say. Yeah, religious. I'm not, I'm not yeah. suggesting for one second that that, sure. that not religious means means uh, yeah, immoral. You know, God forbid. Um, you know, uh, like we were talking about. You know, uh, uh, this uh, rich, my running buddy, who's about shuva, but he, you know, but he's a guy who I don't believe that becoming religious has made any difference in his morality. He's just an incredibly moral person, sure. intuitively. Sweet, sweet person. So um, sweet person. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, you know, nevertheless, you know, what, what I, I, I'll define religious, you know, again, in a sort of a superficial way: Shomer Shabbat and Shomer Kashrut. Yeah. You know, and. Uh, and you know it's a, it's a very very important part of our life. It was a very important part of the reason we made Aliyah. You know, if, as we, we, you pointed out how how Israel is a big uh, is a big lure for for religious people. So to come to Israel and and have and raise raise your children 
and, and have them wind up not being Shomer Shabbat, I think is, is painful. I've seen, you know, far too many examples of that. And, and I'm curious how, uh, how uh, the Israel-specific experience has impacted that. You know, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a painful thing to contemplate, but I think it's something that, you know, as a, as a, as a father of six children and you're a father of eight, Wow. Yeah. Okay, you got me beat there. <laughs> I, don't know. I can still run a little faster than you, maybe, but <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot faster. Uh, two, two more categories I want to cover, and then we'll get to the rapid-fire questions. Um, the robbery of your store. Obviously, a devastating, a devastating time. Um, what did it mean for you in terms of? living in this land promised to our forefathers and and how you know things are supposed to be right here you know this is you know god i came to israel because i believe this is the right place for for jews to be and this happens you know what what went through your mind back then how did it impact your perspective on on life here um that's a very good question um it did engender a little bit of uh bitterness initially um, it was devastating. I mean, the whole thing was wiped out. You know, I couldn't get insured because it was like this. It was first of all, the whole thing was a very ideological. For sure. You know, I built this uh, you know wooden chalet in the middle of the Burma Road, and uh, you know, and uh, it was isolated, so you couldn't get insurance because, uh, unfortunately, that there there are Bedouins in the area who were you know kind of uh, uh, sort of infamous for stealing everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, and ultimately, it's probably what happened. I would have been much more embittered had I believed that uh, that, that it, uh, you know Israeli had stolen from me. It was it was um, it was a difficult experience. Um, was I uh, was I upset with God at the po- at that t- point? I would have to, uh, in all candidness, tell you that I probably was. Um, but my wife always says I, I look I, I see the world through rose tinted glasses. That's probably why I didn't have security or insurance to begin with. Um, you know and. Uh, and I'm, I'm sort of constitutionally designed to, uh, to be upbeat. So it didn't devastate me that way. In fact, you know, whereas many would have probably closed the store, I just got right back up and opened again, you know, only to get robbed a second time. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's funny, my whole life I'd never been robbed. I got robbed in the store twice and robbed at home within 15 months. So, uh, yeah, so, so the first 40-something years of my life, nothing, and then, you know, then three in rapid succession. Um, it's it's a feeling of real violation, you know. When someone comes in, it's like it's just like it's it's um, you know it's funny. Do you know that there's uh, in in um, the uh, Parshat Noach, it talks about the, uh, the you know the world had reached a, a point where obviously it required destruction, sure. and it said uh, and what was the reason? What was the, what was the particular sin which resulted in the Gzardin, which God's saying okay, there's too much. It says Gezel, right, thievery, and I said that's kind of weird, right? There's rape, there's idolatry, there's murder. You know, thievery, that's, that seems kind of small potatoes on the, uh, on the grand scheme of things. But then I realized, I said, you know, here's, I said, I spent so much time, you know, trying to create something, right? And civilization is really predicated on people doing that, on building, right? And all of a sudden, in one second, some guy decided, you know, I'm going to take that. Wow. And, all, and there were, it, was, it was years of, of, of not, not just hard money and, and, and effort, but just of dreams and fantasies and, and, uh, and ideology and, you know, and, and passion. All that evaporated, you know, when I walked into the store one day and saw broken windows and, and everything in the store, you know, had, had vanished. So that was a trend sense of violation. I really understood the idea why, why civilization simply does not exist when, when people are just going to take what, what other people have, have uh, toiled, you know, uh, you know, heroically for. So that was sort of devastating. Yeah. And then the second question is, um, 25 years, have there ever been moments of... Maybe we should. Maybe we should leave. 
Um, aside, aside from those first couple of years in Jerusalem where right. we felt uh, the absence of a, of a community and, and uh, you know, again, felt, felt that, you know, we, yes, we were, we were giving up on the creature comforts, you know, living in an apartment and, you know, and, and that kind of thing. But the, but the take, meaning the, the uh, encountering these warm, you know, uh, incredible people who we would not necessarily have encountered in Chutzlaretz, um, we weren't feeling that then. At that point, we were a little bit on the, on the brink. But I would say since '99, when we moved to Beit Shemesh, it's been, uh, it's been, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a sort of. Two team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, listen, there are challenges in everybody's life, but uh, I would say we've never looked back. And again, I would say that that uh, that's reinforced more and more by the fact that every time I go back to the states now. I feel there's less and less that attracts me. It's a fun place to vacation, sure, sure. but but I never find myself envious that wow, you know, if I lived here, I could have this versus that, and that, and I think that's a, that's a sign of a maturity, but more so, it's a sign of the fact that Israel has uh, has advanced, you know, miraculously. You know, it's funny we, we we're so jaded, you know, as 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 Westerners, you know, we come from the most sophisticated and and and. Uh, and luxury society in the world, and, and tolerant, you know. Right. I mean, notwithstanding the anti-Semitic attacks in America right now, and uh, you know, life for us in America was great. You know, Baltimore's a fantastic place to be, and you know, and I was in, in New York and so on. Um, and uh, and it's very easy for us to come here with a sort of um, snobby thing, like, oh, you know, this is this is so Mickey Mouse and so on. And I used to say that a lot when I first got here. Right. But it's ironic that now when I go to the states, I go. That's weird. Why don't they just learn? Like, there's so many things that are so much more sophisticated. Even things like Pongo. You know what I mean? You know the nightmares of parking in an American city. Right. So, right. so, so in many respects, just on the on the materialistic and sophistication level, Israel's in a totally different place than it was. We're, we're a superpower in a, in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Rapid fire questions. Go you for can it. take as little or as much time with these as you want. Okay. okay? In the Wisman home. Kedem or Israeli grape juice? Kedem, definitely. Still Kedem. Heinz or Israeli ketchup? Um, believe it or not, Israeli ketchup. And by the way, I always say the, the way you know that, you're, that you've had a successful klita is your kids actually like Osem better than Heinz. My kids do. <laughs> <laughs> We're real Israelis now. <laughs> <laughs> the Israeli food that you love the most? The Israeli food that I love the most? Um, I would say... Uh, Shawarma still got to be right up there. You know, you cannot get a good shawarma in America. Is there an Israeli food that that everyone seems to love, and you're like, I can't stand this thing? Yeah, perig, poppy. You, know, you ever go into like, like poppy a poppy seed pastries and that oh yeah, kind of you, stuff? you ever you ever go into like a bakery you go like, and you know like they usually they tend to be a little cheap on the chocolate the ruglach, but you get one and you're like, wow, this is really packed. You bite into it and it's perig. <laughs> I love poppy seeds. Do you? I, by the way, that's, it's a very binary thing, right? People either love it or can't stand it. Right. No one, no one says it's that's okay. But I, I just, I just find that it's very misleading because you think you're biting into chocolate and you feel like these little, uh, these uh, you know little uh, poppy seeds. Have you tried to do the Israeli accent with your Hebrew? Why or why not? Um, no, and and by the way, I really dislike when people uh, people get up in in the shul and do the faux uh, Israeli accent. You know, you are who you are. You know what I mean? I, I think that you should try to speak Hebrew as as properly as you can. Not this, you know, you shouldn't sound like you're talking Yiddish when you're talking in Hebrew. <laughs> but uh, but but I think you are who you are, and I, and I don't think that people need to hide the culture that they come from. So I uh, I, I kind of like when you you uh, you're authentic. Okay, what's been better than you expected? Um, the way my flowers grow, quite frankly. Um, we've developed a really, really good uh, knack for gardening here. Uh, I, I just think the life here has been better. Uh, I, you know, I think that uh, we're healthier um, 
it's, it's, it's also a community which fosters this very sense of closeness for Zugiyu. Like, for example, my wife and I, I think in large measure because of the lifestyle here and the focus and family have had this uh, really blessed marriage. And, and, and I think that if I were in the States, you know, with uh, sort of very focused on upper mobility and I was a partner at a big law firm and, right. and working crazy hours, I don't think that my family life would be anything remotely as close to as, as, uh, as, as uh, successful as it is here. Is there anything you thought would be easy and has actually been more difficult? Hmm. That's, a hard, that's a hard question for rapid fire. You know, I think in the classics uh, categories, uh, education, community, employment, family, um, you know, those are like the big categories that when you're moving to Israel, you think, okay, how am I going to manage each of those? Has any of those actually been easier than you thought? Um, I've actually uh, managed to avoid too much interaction with uh, government agencies. You know, people, uh, people who deal with that, I think, uh, you know, are, are generally speaking not pleased with the results. So I, so I, I sort of had a charmed, you know, charmed life. Again, I came here with, uh, with an income from my law firm, which lasted for 15 years. Um, and uh, you know, I was privileged to you know, teach in yeshiva, learn in yeshiva, get smicha. You know, um, I, I sort of had a privileged life. Um, Parnassa has been a little more challenging over the last number of years, uh, you know, beginning with the store and the robberies and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally speaking, um, it, it's, I think that life here has been a whole lot easier and, and, and happier than I would have anticipated. You know, again, back then, it was a sort of a given that, you know, your life would be a challenge, but, you, but, but hopefully the, the ideological satisfaction would compensate for the, for the physical privations. Sure. Um, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think life here is really just objectively good. Do you have any pet peeves about life in Israel? Um, yes, yes. I, I think that uh, the local culture is uh, lacks a certain consideration. Um, you know, I think that's uh, that's something which which uh, needs to be worked on. And by the way, it's in the religious and non-religious community. You know, the Haredi community. Um, you know, uh, I don't think anything about their lifestyle necessarily rejects the idea of just being sweet and and you know well mannered and things like that. I think that manners. Um, even the idea of yielding to someone on the road and things like that. Uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, Israeli will think nothing, for example, about double parking and blocking the road. You know, if he or needs to go in. Right. In other words, <laughs> and, and I'm wondering whether that there's a sense, well, listen, the other guy would do it to me. So, you know, I don't have to be worried about, about uh, doing it. to. So I'd, I would say that the, um, that, that kind of bothers me. Um, it's probably the only, the, the single thing which I, which I think that uh, Israel could, could learn a whole lot of from the, from the United States from. Just the sense of, of gentle, you know, Israelis always take take for um, always uh, sort of defend themselves by saying, "Yeah, but it's all phony." You know that that hi, how are you, sir? You know, the customer service right. you get in a store, so it's all phony. You know, if you faint in a bus, uh, you know, the Israelis will be out there. You know, said so that may be the case, but you you walk into stores every day of your life, you don't faint in a bus very frequently. So, so I don't know that the, that the and then again, they're not mutually exclusive, but I think that's something that could uh, that can and should change here. Although I will concede that customer service has gotten a whole lot better. You know, over the years, it's actually gotten worse in America. By the way, try to you know, it's gotten a lot. Worse. You know, so I, I think that the gaps have, have narrowed. But I'd say that that's that's my peeve. You know, people could be a little a little uh, a little gentler and a little uh, less uh, less rough and tumble here. Right. Uh, what brings you to tears in Israel, like tears of joy? Um, anything associated with uh, with soldiers 
and uh, and uh, and people just being out there for for uh, for each other. Um, for example, there was you know during the war, obviously a very emotional time. There was this uh, this video that went that went uh, was going around. And did you see it? Of soldiers saying good Shabbos to people. They, I didn't they, see it. No. So so there was this, so the I guess I think the uh, you know the the army has a video core that went to different units. You know. Guys sitting on their tanks and uh, and you know and you know on the border and and, and they're just saying you know Shabbat Shalom Anachnu you know we're here for you Beautiful. now our job is to um, I'm getting choked up as I say right now um, and I sent it here's a funny thing I, I sent it around to to my family WhatsApp group and to my friends. And then my wife realized afterwards that our son was actually in the video. He was actually, I didn't say he was wearing the helmet, so I didn't recognize him, but that, but that uh, I was choked up long before I knew he was in it. And, uh, and there's something very beautiful about the fact that, you know, there's these 18, 19-year-old kids are willing to put their lives in the line, you know, and they really feel this sense of belonging and the sense of obligation. And, this, this, and, that's, and that's more powerful than anything else out there. No American kid feels that way about anything. You know, to, to you know, for 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 a kid who's eighteen and a half years old, you know, to be spending all nighters in a trench, or, or you know, and uh, and in the mud, and and not sleeping, and not coming up for Shabbat, you know, and 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 believe that what he's doing is is uh, safeguarding the right of Jews to live here. That is that's as powerful as it gets for me. What do you miss most about the place you came from? Seven Eleven. Really? <laughs> you kidding? Forty-eight ounce coffees for a buck? <laughs> that's true. I was more of a Slurpee guy. Yeah, uh, Slurpees are awesome too. <laughs> but I say uh, Sunday is a pretty awesome thing, you know. Right, right. I mean, think about it. You know, and you and how many nice and in Baltimore, New York, how many nice Sundays do you get a year? Fifteen, you know, in a good year, True. you'd you'd have you'd have forty five gorgeous Sundays, you know. Like you, like you enjoy your days off here so so much. I think the long weekends in New York, like the Memorial Days, the President's Days, that's a great that's a great innovation. I mean, listen, it's true. We do have election days quite frequently here, um, but uh, but but I think that I think that Sunday would make a major difference in the whole social framework here. Don't yeah, you don't you feel yeah, that way? And it's, and it's been on and off the national agenda but so many times. I, I don't know why they don't adopt it, but I think I think that's probably the thing I miss most. I think you should go into politics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Was Aliyah a light switch or a long-term process for you? Uh, I, I you know was, what I mean by that? Yeah, yes, yes. Um, you know, we sort of had a, we had a five-year plan, but uh, you know, I'm not a big planner. I'm a kind of a spontaneous guy. So um, you know, I went there a month before, found an apartment, and, you know, and, and there we were. You know, it wasn't yeah. like these uh, people who were you know, saving up X amount of money to, to, to get there or you know, taking a certain amount of OPAN courses or you know, making sure they have enough money to buy X appliances. We, uh, so in that sense, we're probably a little more spontaneous than most. And we only had one kid, so we weren't so encumbered. Right. If you come with four kids, you know, and you got to find this, the right schools and so on, it's a different, uh, different consideration. So I wouldn't say necessarily that our experience was representative. Two more questions. Is Aliyah for everyone? I believe so. I believe, I, I mean, I'm not saying that everyone ha- will be able to duplicate their lives in, in uh, you know, they had in the States here, but I believe everyone can make it here. Um, everyone can flourish here. Everyone can find a happy life here. Uh, do I think that uh, there, there are the same business opportunities here? Um, perhaps not. You know, I'll give you one, one, uh, one quick example. I remember when I was uh, on one of my business trips, I went to a shul in Muncie. And a guy was telling me, oh, this guy has uh, an accountant, but he has like an airline parts business. And, this guy, and, and, they, and they buy like strip malls together and that kind of thing. I think everyone's got sort of side hustles. The, 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 the culture there is very, very entrepreneurial related. 
in our particular community, there are very few entrepreneurs. Everyone's you know working for Cisco or NDS or you know are one of these companies. So it's not entrepreneurial related. Um, but there are but you know but you go to a place like Baca, even in, even in your community, that's much more entrepreneurial based. So I, I think there's a place for everybody. Renata, you know, places like that. But uh, I, I don't think at this point there's a whole lot of reason, especially now with telecommuting and you know and all that, that uh, that that Israel is sort of out of bounds for anyone. Right. Right. Uh, the last question is, what's your magnet? Let me explain. Um, I've always felt that when it comes to living here, there needs to be a theoretical magnet on your refrigerator to constantly remind you of what's keeping you here. What's your magnet? Uh, my magnet is, I, I think this is where the Jewish people uh, belong. You know, this is, I think this is our destiny. And, uh, you know, I always feel myself, you know, like, like uh, you know, you're supposed to sort of have a... a a brief to argue in front of God, right? You know, so so at the end of days, you know, when I come to God and say, okay, what have you done with your life? You know, have I fallen short in many areas? Have I learned as much? Have I been as big a balchess as I could have been? Have I been a good enough father? You know, the best husband I could have been? Perhaps not. You know, I've done the best I can. But, uh, but I think the fact that I've decided to, to throw my lot in with the Jewish people after thousands of years of exile is, uh, is something which I will uh, emphasize in my, uh, in my uh, defense. And, and, uh, and I think the beauty of it is it hasn't even been hard. You know, people who did it, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, that right. was hard. Right. You know, I mean, I mean you know, listen, you know, look around. I mean, this is, uh, you know, we're not suffering. And, uh, and, and I think it's been an incredible privilege. But um, so I'm wondering whether or not that that's in somehow diminishes the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the ferocity of that, of that uh, defense claim. But, uh, but nonetheless, I do believe that, uh, that, that we're privileged to live in an era where, uh, you know, our, our ancestors said, but they never thought it was, a, it was, you know, they didn't have a prayer in hell of getting to Yerushalayim. Right, it's not practical. Yeah, but, but for us, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, not only reality, it's, it's fairly simple to do. <laughs> and, and I think that that's my magnet. You know, this is, this is where Jews belong, especially now you hear more and more about the anti-Semitic incidents and, you know, Europe's tolerance for the Jews is only skin deep. And even in the U.S., there's, uh, you know, which has been, uh, you know, a historical bastion of tolerance. This is where we belong. You know, Gold, there's no doubt in my mind. This is where we belong. Uh, we got plenty of internal problems like all families do, but, uh, but life here is good. And, uh, and the fact that if, if push comes to shove, my boys, you know, will, will take up arms and defend the Jewish state is a matter of, of uh, intense and enduring pride for me. So I would have to say that's my magnet. Hi, Wisman. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for having me. 